If you got your Bibles, go ahead and learn to turn to uh, Luke chapter uh, 10. We're going to be there today if you uh, access those on your phone or however you get to God's Word. If you're not familiar with looking up God's Word, most of the scriptures today will be on the screen behind me. I want to start with a simple statement this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ in its most unadulterated form is to love God and to love others. That's it. Those are the words of Christ himself. When we look at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, it says this. It says, one of the scribes, one of the chief priests of those days, came up and heard them and was disturbing, uh, disputing with one another. And seeing what he answered, well, he asked Jesus, which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered and said this, the most important, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. That's it. Love God, love others. However, the gospel is often hijacked. The gospel of peace, the gospel of love that Jesus talked about here is often hijacked, manipulated, and transformed to fit our own personal needs, our own cultural attitudes, our political leanings, and even our global interactions. Politicians can transform the gospel to legitimize their positions. Movements of hate and bigotry transform the gospel to justify their actions and attitudes. Husbands can transform the gospel to legitimize their abuse of authority over their wives and their families. Mothers can transform the gospel to justify their need to have absolute control over every aspect of their children's lives. Pastors can transform the gospel to create environments of guilt and shame and make people dependent upon them instead of God. I personally can transform the gospel to meet my own needs to elevate my own agenda, to justify my actions, and so can you. But that is not Christianity. That is not what Christ called us to be. There are literally thousands of man-made definitions of what it means to be a Christian. For some, it depends on your political alignment. For others, it's how you view certain social Issues For others, it's how your life stacks up against a certain moral code of action. For some, it's how loud you talk about your beliefs, and while others, it's how deeply you ponder what you believe. Some claim that following Christ will require a certain level of sacrifice, and yet others claim that following Christ will result in material wealth and riches. Some people can't separate Christianity from how it was practiced in their personal heritage and upbringing, while others seem to think that Christianity is all about finding new truths and uncovering new ways of thinking that have yet to be discovered. This can be confusing. And actually this week, you know, this, this confusion over what Christianity is and what it means to experience peace with God is not a new question. It's not a new thing that our culture is dealing with in this moment. Groups of people have hijacked God's desire for peace with man and peace with God and peace on this earth since the beginning of time, and it's happened throughout history. And this past week, when we look at the things that are going on in our specific culture here, it has kind of been a confusing and a confounding week for American cultural Christianity. We, if you step back and just take your own agenda and views that and just watch what's happened, we've witnessed a group of people with no hidden agenda, spew hate and bigotry toward other people, and some of them said they were doing it in the name of Christ. 
We've also seen men and women stand against this hate and violence and say that they are doing it in the name of Christ. We've had religious leaders both defend and decry both of these groups. We've had religious leaders both defend and decry the response or lack thereof of our president on this issue. So what's the answer? Who is right? Who, is, who has the gospel figured out? Who are the real Christians? Who are the true followers of God? Jesus was asked this exact same question in a very similar context. And this is the story that we're going to look at today. Last week, Michael began a series that we're going to finish in August called Storytellers, where we're looking at some of these parables, these stories that Jesus told in the Bible. And these parables and stories aren't just thrown into the Bible to give it some creative element, to like create some drama and tension. Instead, they are most often ways that Jesus answered difficult questions, questions that people were struggling with, questions about issues that people were misguided on, questions about living out the gospel of peace, about living a righteous life. Jesus used these stories to sometimes encourage people, but he also used them to expose motives to those that were asking them. In the instance that we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to expose a corrupted view of the gospel. And it's this idea that if we just do enough to love God and show our love for God and have no consequence and compassion on other people, we're all right. This idea says that as long as I do things to please God, as long as I tell God that I love him, I don't break his rules, I keep myself from evil, then that is all I need to do to be considered righteous. But Jesus literally blows up this idea. He attacks it full force. He dismantles it with a simple story. He exposes the false idea that our righteousness before God is also not impacted by our actions toward other people. You can't separate the two. That's why he said you cannot say love God and you can't love others. He said which is the greatest? There is no greater than these two. They go hand in hand. They're interwoven together. To help us better understand this story, let's look at the context that we find Jesus in Luke chapter 10. So as you turn there, as you begin to look at that, we literally find Jesus sitting in a room filled with men and women who have very different understandings of what righteousness is. It might be if we gather a room of people this week from different cultural context, even within our country, from different political leanings within our country, and put them in one room and said, give us your opinion on what true Christianity is. They would have multiple views. On one side, if you read earlier in the chapter, there are 72 people that he had just sent out to live out the gospel, the good news of peace with God, to everyone that they came into contact with. He literally sent them out with no resources, no specific route, no exact plan of action. He sent them out and said, whoever you come into contact with, show peace. Offer peace to them. That's what the first part of this chapter is about. These 72 had just returned, and they were in this room sharing about their experiences, sharing about their journey, talking about how the true gospel of peace was transforming people's lives. They were talking about something that most people had not experienced to that point. But also in the room were a group of people that considered themselves holy because of their Jewish heritage. These people were watching what Jesus was doing, and they were troubled by it. They held firm to the belief that they were superior to people of other races, of other religions, and people of a different status of life. 
They believed they had exclusive access to God and were more important to God than anyone else. He was literally sitting in a room of racial supremacists, and they were challenging him to give them justification for their beliefs. And this is where we find Jesus. This is where we find him in this moment. What a story for our culture today. He's literally in a room filled with people which says everyone is loved by God. Everyone should have peace with God, and we're seeing it. And there are others saying, no, God's peace and God's love is just for us. And this is where we find him. And Jesus deals with this hypocrisy here in this story. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 29. We'll start with this. And it says this. And behold, a lawyer. And a lawyer at that time was not just somebody who we would consider a lawyer. This was a, a, a person who knew the law of God. This was somebody who understood God's law. Stood up to put him to the test. I love how we already know what his motive is, right? He stood up to put Jesus to the test. And he said, teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Verse 29 is key. It says, Then the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor. Before we get into Jesus' answer to that question of who your neighbor is, we have to take a moment and dissect this amazing interaction between Jesus and this Jewish lawyer. I want to first look at the motive behind the lawyer's question. The motive was simply this, to test Jesus. This question had one intent in mind. Most people knew the answer to that question. Most people were versed in the, in the Torah and what it taught What I even just read out of Mark, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that was originally written in the Torah, way back. That wasn't just a saying of Christ. It was found in the Old Testament scriptures as well. People knew that answer. What he was testing was Jesus' commitment to the establishment. Jesus, are you going to stand with us? The ones who are in control, the ones who have determined who God is and what God wants. Are you going to rock the boat? Are you... Really teaching something different? Are you just wanting fame and prestige? Are you with us or against us? This was the test. This was the motive behind the question. The question was a litmus test for the lawyer and the other religious leaders that were there in that room. And this lawyer starts his question with a compliment. He says, teacher. Now that word teacher was actually reserved for people who had been through rigorous Jewish training, who had caught up and trained under another religious leader. This was not a term that was just thrown out lightly. And so this lawyer knew what he was buttering Jesus up. Teacher. It'd be like, you know, calling me a a doctor, even though I've not been to school to to be a doctor. Laying that kind of title on someone. He says, teacher. He starts with this compliment. You know, he was not doing this just to compliment Jesus He was doing it to give Jesus an open door to say, come in, join us, answer this question correctly, and we can help you and you can help us. This motive wasn't to get Jesus's real answer. The motive was to get Jesus to publicly side with the view of how to have peace with God. But Jesus didn't bite. He did not bite on the lawyer's question here. Instead, he twisted it. 
a little bit. And I love what Jesus did. While, while the lawyer and the other leaders think that they have painted Jesus into a corner, Jesus in his infinite wisdom uses one question to turn the tables and put the lawyer in the corner. And he says this, what is written in the law? Who better to ask this to than a lawyer? Right? Somebody who knows the law. He's basically saying, look, you're a lawyer. You tell me what the law says. How do you read it? He immediately turns and says, you're the expert in the room here. Why don't you answer your own question? And the lawyer answers with the truth as he finds it in the law, which is the unadulterated gospel. And he says it's to love God and love others. And I love what Jesus does. He says, you're right. He says, this, I agree with this. You're correct. If that's what you believe, and then, then we're in agreement. If you are literally living out these two equally important commandments, and they're guiding your heart, soul, and mind, then we are on the same page. No one sitting in that room would disagree with the lawyer's answer. But it was the next statement to see where the true point of division came between this lawyer and with Jesus. So Jesus turned the table, and now the lawyer, trying to be a schemer that he often, sometimes lawyers are, tried to turn it back. Oh, nobody's a lawyer in here this morning, sorry. Turn it back on to Jesus. And what does he do? In verse 29, the lawyer attempts to again turn the tables and says, in an attempt to justify his actions. So this man already knew that his actions needed justification. His actions didn't line up completely with what scripture said. He had twisted the gospel of peace a bit to accommodate him. And he wanted Jesus to justify him. And he asked him this question, who is my neighbor? This man already had a definition of neighbor and wanted Jesus to confirm it. Neighbor was reserved for this lawyer, for those that were in a similar station of life, a similar background, a similar ethnic group, those who he deemed worthy of his love. Proximity was his definition of neighbor, and I'm not talking about proximity with distance, but proximity in station and standing of life. He viewed his neighbor as people that were similar to him, believed like him, looked like him, had the same agenda as him. That was his neighbor, and he wanted justification for how he had chosen to twist the directives of God to suit his own needs and personal agenda. And we look at this lawyer and we're like, what a jerk. You know, how can he do that? But the truth is, if we just take just a brief moment and examine our own lives, we can so easily do the same thing. And here this lawyer thinks that he has laid another trap for Jesus. In their current climate, these Jewish people were living under Roman occupation. And the only answer that they thought Jesus could give would be say, of course your neighbor is your fellow Jew, your brother. He couldn't say to love the Roman, love the Samaritan, love the other Gentiles. If he did, then even the most ardent supporters would turn on him, right? And that's where they thought they had put Jesus in a corner. And so Jesus answers this question, who is my neighbor? And he answers it with a story. And he wants to spend the rest of our time looking at this story. This parable carries deep truth for us today. Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 30, and it says this. So Jesus replied, to this question, who is my neighbor? And he said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And before we keep reading, I hope you understand something. In these parables, this, there is significance in every word and every aspect of what Jesus says. He doesn't just say this guy was traveling on a road. He points out a specific road, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've been on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is, Jerusalem is up high, Jericho is down low. It's a winding road through mountains, 
curving. It was also in that time, in Jesus' time, it was known as the way of blood. Because along that road, often robbers and people would hide and attack people. It was people often lived in Jericho and they had to travel to Jerusalem. It was known not as a safe place. It, the, the fact was also these men, if they were traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, it probably meant that they had traveled to Jerusalem to visit the temple, to offer sacrifices, and often also to pay taxes to Caesar, to pay their Roman taxes. For Jews, leaving Jerusalem and traveling toward Jericho was a reminder of the oppression and occupation that they were experiencing from the Roman Empire. They literally went to the capital, the, the, where Rome had set up their capital in the middle of the Jewish culture, taken over their temple and said, so when you come, you will see the Roman occupation and now they're walking home. The topic of conversation on the road home would certainly have included how they were feeling frustrated and victimized by the Romans. They would have said how they needed God to send someone to help them. How they were in need of someone to see their dire situation. The mention of this road and this pathway would have been understood by everyone in that room. It would have merely brought to their mind a need for protection, provision, and guidance. Traveling this road puts you on edge physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It was a vulnerable place. And what happened to this man in the story? Continue reading. It says, And he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departing, departed, leaving him half dead. In this story, we find a man that has fallen victim to that vulnerability. We don't know anything else about this man. He could have been a Jew. He could have been a Roman. He could have been wealthy or poor. He could have been evil or righteous. He could have been a man out looking to take advantage of other people and got taken advantage of himself, or he could simply be a man on his way home to see his family. We don't know. We don't know anything about the character of this man or his worthiness of love and compassion as determined by other human people. He was simply a man, beaten, thrown on the side of the road to die. We just know that he experienced the worst of what that road could dish out. He'd been victimized. The worst fears that other had in their lives on that road had come true and his life. Verse 31. Now by chance a priest was going down the road. Thank God. Right? Here comes a priest. A priest in those days would have been very similar to a political leader in our days. They were the judges of the day, the enforcers of the law. They had authority over people and with the Roman government. If anyone could help this man, it would be this priest. A powerful man with connections could see this man in a desperate state and could see a need for him to reach out and make things right. Thank God the priest came by. But that's not where this verse ends. It says that when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. (laughs) While the priest had every available resource needed to help this man, he chose to see the need and pass by on the other side of the road. He weighed his political options and chose not to act. He had no problem justifying his actions. Maybe he saw the man and felt like he had done something to get himself into that situation. Maybe he blamed the man for traveling that road alone and not taking proper steps to guard himself from an attack. Maybe while he certainly wouldn't justify the actions of the attackers, the priest was willing to blame the man for traveling that road. Maybe the priest would use this incident to try to write more laws 
to create more rules that would keep it from happening again in the future. Maybe along the rest of the road, he pondered how he could stop these attacks, but he never thought about how he could stop and help this one man that had already been attacked. Or maybe the, maybe the priest thought this was a trap. Maybe he looked at this man and thought that this was a trap set for him. Maybe this man was simply pretending to be attacked so that the priest would come and put himself in a position of vulnerability. And the priest was too wise to fall for this trick. How could he take the chance to end up like this man? To lose his status, his security, for a man that might be doing nothing but trying to trick him. And maybe the priest was just saw this man as somebody that was meaningless. Maybe this priest was just heartless. Maybe he looked at the man with disgust. He saw a foreigner or an outsider. Maybe in his warped mind, he thought that the life of this man wasn't worth saving. Even though he held the power in his hands to rescue this man, he did not want to get involved because it brought no value to him. Jesus doesn't tell us why this priest passed on the other side of the road. Just like you and I, people in that room could have come up with a, probably a hundred different ideas. But what Jesus did was help people to see that if you want to, if you want to, you can always find political reasons not to show love and compassion. If you want to. You can always justify your actions with political motives. You can find reasons based in policy, procedure, rules, and law that will insulate you from ever acting on behalf of somebody else. You can create so many hoops for somebody to jump through, for them to receive love, compassion, and help that no one can ever meet all of those requirements. And then you can blame them for not meeting those requirements instead of yourself. This allows you to justify your actions to yourself and even to others. The priest, this political power broker, saw an opportunity for compassion and to show a neighbor love, and he chose to withhold it instead. Here clearly, this isn't the gospel of peace that Jesus is teaching. This isn't it. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him. Well, again, if a politician's won't act, then thank God the next person that came by was a more religious person. The Levite was the spiritual leader tasked with modeling God's law in everyday life. They assisted the priests. They were, they were the ones who set the temple up. They knew God's law, and it was their job to teach the people how to live out that law. They would know the commands of God and be trying to help people make sense of them in their lives. This is a man that should be filled with compassion and be looking for every opportunity to express God's love to others. Thank God he walked by. But what does the verse say? It says that as he saw him, he too passed by on the other side. While the Levite had spiritual knowledge to understand why he should offer this man help, he chose to see the need and pass by on the other side. He began to weigh the laws and commands of God and self-determine which were more important to him in that moment. While there were rules from God about cleanliness and not touching people with bleed that were bleeding or dead, there were also rules and commands by God for helping someone in need for showing kindness and compassion to a stranger and a foreigner. And the Levite in this instance chose to follow the command that cost him the least. It cost him the least. Maybe the Levite looked at the man and thought, if I help him and touch him, I'm going to get blood on me. Then I've got to follow the rules of ritual purification. And that's too time consuming. I'm going to have to wash. I'm going to have to withdraw from the city. I'm going to have to go present myself to the priest to make sure I'm clean again. That's a lot of work to help a man that I don't even know 
Maybe he's even beyond saving. What if I help him and he dies anyway? Then there's even more rules about ritual cleanings for touching a dead body. He weighed the cost to help this man, and he chose not to sacrifice. Or maybe the Levite looked at the man and saw someone that wasn't of the Jewish faith and heritage, and he saw a Gentile or a Roman occupier. Maybe he saw someone he would consider an enemy of his faith. Why would I help him? Why would I sacrifice anything for someone who is nothing like me and even works against what I believe? Why would I help him? Maybe if this man would first convert or renounce his wickedness or consider seeking forgiveness, then I would show compassion. I would show love toward him, but he must first prove himself to me, prove that he is worthy of God's love and grace. Or maybe the Levite looked at the man and saw a Jewish man that had disregarded the law, a man that had repeatedly broken the commands of God and disregarded the teachings of the priests and the Levites, a man who was unfaithful, a bad example of what it meant to follow the ways of God. He was a sinner, a failure in the faith, a man who was maybe getting what he deserved, the Levite thought. Maybe this was God's way of punishing him. And if the Levite stood in and stepped in and helped, maybe he would actually be working against God's plan. Maybe this guy needed to suffer so that God could teach him a lesson. Maybe he didn't look at this man with compassion, but instead with contempt and a mindset, mindset of you are getting what you deserve. Jesus doesn't tell us again why the Levite passed on the other side of the road. I've come up with some ideas. You could come up with some ideas. People in that room could come up with ideas. But what Jesus did was this. He helped people see that if you want to, if you want to, you can always find religious reasons not to show love and compassion. Just like the priest could find political reasons not to show love and compassion. If you want to, if you want to justify your actions, you can find religious reasons not to show love and compassion. You can take truths out of context. You can bend them to fit your perspective. You can use God's laws and commands to separate people from God's grace instead of using them to lead people into God's grace. Instead of loving people, we can debate about what love is, what level of love we are called to express for how long and how often. We can get more excited about teaching God's truth than actually living out God's truth. The Levite, this religious leader, saw an opportunity for compassion to show a neighbor love and need, and he withdrew instead. This is not the gospel of peace that Jesus is teaching. This religious justification. Now we come to the better part of the story, verse 33. But then a Samaritan, <clears throat> as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. A Samaritan. If you don't know what a Samaritan is, it was basically a half-breed, half-Jew, half-Gentile. Hated by both sides. Neither one liked Samaritans. Nobody liked Samaritans. Samaritans even often fought within their own selves and some identified more as Jews, some identified more as Gentile, and it friction within their own race. Being a Samaritan was not an easy way to live. They were looked upon as the lowest of lows in culture, someone that no one would look to as an example of how to love God and love others. This is yet the person who shows 
compassion. A man who had no reason to help, a man who had every right to be bitter and angry and resentful to whoever this man was on the road, and yet he stopped and showed compassion. Why? Because when the Samaritan looked at this man, he saw a man, a man in need. He didn't stop and think about who this man was or if he was deserving of compassion. He didn't stop and ponder how this would impact his life. He didn't hesitate to see if someone else was going to come by and help instead of him. He didn't wait and see if the man would ask for help or could help himself. He acted because he was a man helping a neighbor, helping another man. The Samaritan didn't let his political views or his religious beliefs drive him away from this man in need. Instead, he let his connection with a man as a fellow human being drive him to show compassion. This is the gospel of peace that Jesus is teaching. This example of this Samaritan. The gospel of peace never pushes us away from those in need. It does not push us away from those in need. The gospel of peace is never lacking in compassion, even for the stranger, the foreigner, or the enemy. The gospel of peace is also about sacrificing, putting yourself at risk financially, socially, emotionally, for the well-being of others in need. The gospel of peace isn't restrained because of fear of experiencing the same plight of those that we are helping. The gospel of peace isn't thwarted by a perceived lack of time or resources to help those in need. The gospel of peace is not negated by our personal preferences, our own agendas. And this is where Jesus' next question to the lawyer leads. Look at verse 36. Jesus now asked the lawyer a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. You realize the, the lawyer wouldn't even identify the man as a Samaritan? Wouldn't even call him by who he's like, the one who showed mercy. Not even going to, he was so angry, he wouldn't even dignify the hero of the story by calling him who he was and what he is. Jesus asked which of these men loved the neighbor, and his story proved to be it was the Samaritan, the one who showed how to have eternal life. It wasn't the powerful priest. It wasn't the pious Levite. It was the lowly Samaritan. Jesus turned this unlikely and unexpected man into an example to follow, and this revolutionized the way people understood God and his call to love others. The simple story that Jesus told tore at the ingrained prejudice, piety, superiority, and hatred that were woven into the fabric of the culture of his day. Through this story, he confronted evil. He exposed narcissism and rejected years of corruption that had been masqueraded as godly righteousness through thought and behavior. And he did this not by calling other people names and not by repaying evil with evil, but instead by elevating true righteousness, peace, and love. With this simple story, he taught a group of men and women that had been experiencing oppression and injustice and hatred themselves that there is no place in the heart of God that embraces or excuses perpetuating that type of behavior onto those that you have advantage over yourself. Today, this week, Many in our Christian community failed this test. We, we faced 
when faced with an opportunity to denounce hatred and show compassion to a victim of hate this week, they passed on the other side. Instead of shopping, stopping and showing compassion, many found a way to justify the plight of the victim. Men and women who claimed to be Christians in elected positions of political influence and power made indefensible responses to an act of hatred and evil that marginalized the victims and emboldened the aggressors. There were statements by a number of prominent religious leaders that did nothing but cloud the distinctive nature of how a follower of Christ should respond to those in need of compassion because of obvious hate and malicious behavior. However, once you hear this morning, the teachings of Jesus are very clear. In this moment, to not find common ground with the victim of a hate crime and instead find ways to identify with the perpetrator of hate is unilaterally unchristian. There's no Christianity in that. I wish that I personally always knew the best way to respond to moments like these, to what we've seen this past week, the debates that are going on in our culture this past week. I wish I always knew the best way to respond. And as thoughtful and as intentional as I try to be, like the lawyer in this story, I can sometimes only see things from my perspective. Each of us have a limited perspective that we need God's grace to remove our blinders and to start seeing things through the true gospel of peace. Because there is a true Christian response. The only true Christian response is what Jesus lays here out for the lawyer. Go and do likewise. Go and show compassion. The Christian response is to first submit my will to the gospel of peace instead of trying to make the gospel of peace submit to my will. The Christian response isn't finding a way to insulate ourselves from those in need. It isn't trivializing the act of hatred or marginalizing the victim. It isn't rationalizing the acts of hate by comparing the actions of one group with the intentions of another group. The Christian response is also not choosing to replace evil with evil. It's refusing to let hate and anger overtake your soul and cause you to lose sight of God's sovereignty and grace. The goal of the Christian response here this isn't to win an argument, but instead for the peace of Christ to reign in our hearts and to be expressed through our actions. So my question for you today is this. Are you transforming the gospel of peace for your own purposes? Or are you allowing the gospel of peace to transform your life for God's purposes? Are you like the lawyer, the priest, the Levite? Are you taking the gospel and bending it to you? Or is you taking this solid truth to love God and love people and letting God bend you to it? It's been my prayer this week and it will continue to be my prayer that I do not fall into the trap of the priest or the Levite, that I do not allow fruitless political perspectives and debate or hollow religious practices and traditions to derail my calling as a follower of Christ to be a man of compassion and love. I pray that I not only love God, but genuinely love others, no matter how different their culture is to me or no matter how different this culture tells me that they are from me. I want the gospel to change me instead of expecting the gospel to change for me.
Will you pray with me?